The Spasm by Guy de Maupassant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Daniele. The Spasm by Guy de Maupassant. The hotel guests slowly entered the dining room and took their places. The waiters did not hurry themselves, in order to give the latecomers a chance and thus avoid the trouble of bringing in the dishes a second time. The old bathers, d'habitués, whose season was almost over, glanced, gazed toward the door whenever it opened, to see what new faces might appear. This is the principal distraction of watering places. People look forward to the dinner hour in order to inspect each day's new arrivals, to find out who they are, what they do, and what they think. We always have a vague desire to meet pleasant people, to make agreeable acquaintances, perhaps to meet with a love adventure. In this life of elbowings, unknown strangers assume an extreme importance. Curiosity is aroused, sympathy is ready to exhibit itself, and sociability is the order of the day. We cherish antipathies for a week, and friendships for a month. We see people with different eyes, when we view them through the medium of acquaintanceship at watering places. We discover men suddenly, after an hour's chat, in the evening after dinner, under the trees in the park where the healing spring bubbles up, a high intelligence and astonishing merits, and a month afterward we have completely forgotten these new friends, who were so fascinating when we first met them. Permanent and serious ties are also formed here sooner than anywhere else. People see each other every day, they become acquainted very quickly, and their affection is tinged with the sweetness and unrestraint of long-standing intimacies. We cherish in, after years, the dear and tender memories of those first hours of friendship, the memory of those first conversations in which a soul was unveiled, of those first glances which interrogate and respond to questions and secret thoughts which the mouth has not yet uttered, the memory of the first cordial confidence the memory of that delightful sensation of opening our hearts to those who seem to open theirs to us in return, and the melancholy of watering places, the monotony of days that are all alike, proves hourly an incentive to this heart expansion. While well, this evening, as on every other evening, we awaited the appearance of strange faces, only two appeared, but they were very remarkable, a man and a woman, father and daughter. They immediately reminded me of some Edgar Poe's characters, and yet there was about them a charm, the charm associated with misfortune. I looked upon them as the victims of fate. The man was very tall and thin, rather stooped, with perfectly white hair, too white for his comparatively youthful physiognomy, and there was in his bearing and his person that austerity peculiar to Protestants. The daughter, who was probably twenty-four or twenty-five, was small in stature, and was also very thin, very pale, and had the air of one who was worn out with utter lassitude. We meet people like this from time to time, who seem too weak for the tasks and the need of daily life, too weak to move about, to walk, to do all that we do every day. She was rather pretty, with a transparent spiritual beauty, and she ate with extreme slowness, as if she were almost incapable of moving her arms. It must have been she, assuredly, who had come to take the waters. They sat facing me on the opposite side of the table, and I at once noticed that the father had a very singular, nervous twitching. 
Every time he wanted to reach an object, his hand described a sort of zigzag before succeeding in reaching what he was in search of, and after a little while this movement annoyed me so that I turned aside my head in order not to see it. I noticed too that the young girl during meals wore a glove on her left hand. After dinner I went for a stroll in the park of the bathing establishment. This led toward the little Auvergne station of Chatel Guyon, hidden in a gorge at the foot of the high mountain, from which flowed so many boiling springs arising from the deep bed of extinct volcanoes. Over yonder, above our heads, the domes of extinct craters lifted their ragged peaks above the rest in the long mountain chain. For Chatel Guyon is situated at the entrance to the land of mountain domes. Beyond it stretches out the region of peaks, and farther on again the region of precipitous summits. The Pute Dome is the highest of the domes, the peak of Sensi is the loftiest of the peaks, and Cantal is the most precipitous of these mountain heights. It was a very warm evening, and I was walking up and down a shady path, listening to the opening strains of the casino band, which was playing on an elevation overlooking the park. And I saw the father and the daughter advancing slowly in my direction. I bowed as one bows to one's hotel companions at watering place, and the man, coming suddenly to a halt, said to me, Could you not, monsieur, tell us of a nice walk to take, short, pretty, and not steep, and pardon my troubling you? I offered to show them the way toward the valley through which the little river flowed, a deep valley forming a gorge between two tall, craggy, wooded slopes. They gladly accepted my offer, and we talked, naturally, about the virtue of the waters. Oh, he said, my daughter has a strange malady, the seat of which is unknown. She suffers from incomprehensible nervous attacks. At one time the doctors think she has an attack of heart disease, at another time they imagine it is some affection of the liver, and at another they declare it to be a disease of the spine. Today, this protein malady that assumes a thousand forms and a thousand modes of attack is attributed to the stomach, which is the great cauldron and regulator of the body. This is why we have come here. For my part, I am rather inclined to think it is the nerves. In any case, it is very sad. Immediately, the remembrance of the violent spasmodic movement of his hand came back to my mind, and I asked him, But is this not the result of heredity? Are not your own nerves somewhat affected? He replied calmly, Mine? Oh no, my nerves have always been very steady. Then suddenly, after a pause, he went on, Ah, you were alluding to the jerky movement of my hand every time I tried to reach for anything. This arises from a terrible experience which I had. Just imagine this daughter of mine was actually buried alive. I could only utter, Ah, so great were my astonishment and emotion. He continued, Here is the story. It is simple. Juliette had been subject for a time to serious attacks of the heart. We believed that she had disease of the organ and were prepared for the worst. One day she was carried into the house cold, lifeless, dead. She had fallen down unconscious in the garden. The doctor certified that life was extinct. I watched by her side for a day and two nights. I laid her with my own hands in the coffin, which I accompanied to the cemetery, where she was deposited in the family vault. It is situated in the very heart of Lorraine. I wish to have her interred with her jewels, bracelets, necklaces, rings, all presents which she had received from me, 
and wearing her first ball dress. You may easily imagine my state of mind when I re-entered our home. She was the only one I had, for my wife had been dead for many years. I found my way to my own apartment in a half-distracted condition, utterly exhausted and sunk into my easy chair without the capacity to think or the strength to move. I was nothing better now than a suffering, vibrating machine, a human being who had, as it were, been flayed alive. My soul was like an open wound. My old valet, Prosper, who had assisted me in placing Juliette in her coffin and aided me in preparing her for her last sleep, entered the room noiselessly and asked, Does Monsieur want anything? I merely shook my head in reply. Monsieur is wrong, he urged. He will injure his health. Would Monsieur like me to put him to bed? I answered, No, let me alone. And he left the room. I knew not how many hours slipped away. Oh, what a night, what a night. It was cold. My fire had died out in the huge grate. And the wind, the winter wind, an icy wind, a winter hurricane, blew with a regular sinister noise against the windows. How many hours slipped away? There I was without sleeping, powerless, crushed, my eyes wide open, my legs stretched out, my body limp, inanimate, and my mind torpid with despair. Suddenly the great doorbell, the great bell of the vestibule rang out. I started so that my chair cracked under me. The solemn, ponderous sound vibrated through the empty country house as through a vault. I turned round to see what the hour was by the clock. It was just two in the morning. Who could be coming at such an hour? And abruptly, the bell again rang twice. The servants, without doubt, were afraid to get up. I took a wax candle and descended the stairs. I was on the point of asking, who is there? Then I felt ashamed of my weakness, and I slowly drew back the heavy bolts. My heart was throbbing wildly. I was frightened. I opened the door briskly, and in the darkness I distinguished a white figure standing erect, something that resembled an apparition. I recoiled, petrified with horror, faltering. Who, who, who are you? A voice replied, It is I, father. It was my daughter. I really thought I must be mad and retreated backward before this advancing spectre. I kept moving away, making a sign with my hand, as if to drive the phantom away, that gesture which you have noticed, that gesture which has remained with me ever since. Do not be afraid, papa, said the apparition. I was not dead. Somebody tried to steal my rings and cut one of my fingers. The blood began to flow and that restored me to life. And in fact, I could see that her hand was covered with blood. I fell on my knees, choking with sobs and with a rattling in my throat. Then, when I had somewhat collected my thoughts, though I was still so bewildered that I scarcely realized the awesome happiness that had befallen me, I made her go up to my room and sit down in my easy chair. Then I rang exactly for Prosper to get him to rekindle the fire and to bring some wine and to summon assistance. The man entered, stared at my daughter, opened his mouth with a gasp of alarm and stupefaction, and then fell back dead. It was he who had opened the vault, who had mutilated and then abandoned my daughter, for he could not efface the traces of the theft. He had not even taken the trouble to put back the coffin into this place, feeling sure, besides, that he would not be suspected by me, as I trusted him absolutely. You see, monsieur, that we are very unfortunate people. He was silent. The night had fallen, casting his shadows over the desolate, mournful vale, 
and a sort of mysterious fear possessed me at finding myself by the side of those strange beings, of this young girl who had come back from the tomb, and his father with his uncanny spasms. I found it impossible to make any comment on this dreadful story. I only murmured, What a horrible thing! Then, after a minute's silence, I added, Let us go indoors. I think it is growing cold. And we made our way back to the hotel. End of The Spasm Recording by Daniele